You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 7th day of February, 2010. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the podcast and invite them all, as always, to check into my websites, CorbettReport.com, ReportageBook.com, AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com, and ClimateGate.tv, where we're keeping our eye on the implosion of the anthropogenic climate change myth. I'd also like to encourage listeners to check out some of the websites that support and enable this podcast, including zeropointradio.com, where you can listen to live streaming online radio of a number of quality online radio programming content, including not only this podcast, but other podcasts like Media Monarchy. I'd also like to encourage people to check out CascadiaPublicRadio.org. I've received a lot of correspondence over the years that I've been doing this podcast, asking for the podcast to be delivered in a smaller file size or a lower bitrate for people who are on dial-up access or who have to pay a large amount of money for bandwidth. And, of course, I sympathize with your situation, and at CascadiaPublicRadio.org, you'll be able to find the online archives of the Cascadia Public Radio, which provides small file size, low bitrate versions of the Corbett Report podcast and many other quality podcasts besides. Please check out CascadiaPublicRadio.org for a link to their RadioForAll.net account, where you can find out back episodes of this podcast and many others in small, easy-to-download file sizes. Also, people are encouraged to check out and support Archive.org, where, if there is ever a problem contacting my server or downloading the podcast from my server, you can always go to archive.org and search for Corbett Report to find back episodes of this podcast going all the way back to episode 70. I'd also like to let listeners know that I will be appearing on the Truth Frequency podcast this month, so please go to truthfrequency.com and keep an eye out as I should be appearing around February 18th. Also, for listeners in the Ottawa area, I will be appearing on the 5 o'clock train radio program on CHUO-FM, likely this Thursday at 5 p.m. on CHUO-FM 89.1. And now, without further ado, let's get to the Sunday update. Hello, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Welcome to Sunday Update for the 7th day of February 2010. And now for the real news. Internet censorship is back at the forefront this week after a series of incidents that have many concerned about the loss of online liberties. Earlier this week, both Time Magazine and the New York Times simultaneously came out with opinion pieces arguing for new licenses to be distributed by a global internet authority to help prevent computer hacking. It is unclear, however, how licensing internet users will actually reduce crime by hackers who use proxies to mask their identity in the first place. In recent developments, reports indicate that Alex Jones's popular PrisonPlanet.com and Infowars.com websites are being censored in New Zealand. Claire Swinney of the Web of Evidence blog is reporting that a number of New Zealanders using ISPs that rely on Asia Netcom for international internet traffic have been unable to reach the websites in the past two days. Paul Joseph Watson of PrisonPlanet.com wrote one of the key articles exposing the Time and New York Times articles as puff pieces by an establishment media that is concerned with dwindling revenue as the blogosphere continues to usurp their monopoly over information. 
Now, Google is asking for the National Security Agency's help in fighting off cyber attacks. Breathless coverage of the Google-NSA relationship in the establishment press signally fails to note that Obama's cybersecurity czar resigned last year, warning of how the NSA is attempting to take over America's cybersecurity infrastructure. Also not mentioned in recent coverage of the Google-NSA relationship is ex-CIA officer Robert David Steele's revelation to Homeland Security today in 2006. Quote, it, Google, has been taking money and direction for elements of the U.S. intelligence community, including the Office of Research and Development at the CIA, InQtel, and in all probability, both the National Security Agency and the Army's Intelligence and Security Command, end quote. The recent push in the controlled corporate media for instituting internet licenses stems from remarks made at the World Economic Forum in Davos last month by Craig Mundy, Microsoft's chief research and technology officer. Speaking about the need for a global internet regulatory authority, he is quoted as saying, quote, We need a kind of world health organization for the internet. When there is a pandemic, it organizes the quarantine of cases. We are not allowed to organize the systematic quarantine of machines that are compromised, end quote. In other news, Wolfgang Wodarg, the former president of the Health Commission of the Council of Europe, appeared on the Alex Jones Show this week to discuss the ongoing investigation into how the World Health Organization knowingly misled the public about last year's H1N1 pandemic in order to sell vaccines for pharmaceutical companies connected to the WHO's flu advisors. Because we have seen that the, the governments had to order or ordered a lot of uh, vaccines and they were obliged, they made marketing commitments with pharmaceutical companies because they were threatened by specialists, by scientists, that there could be something very dangerous coming. And uh, so they just made those contracts. And within those contracts, which were secret, which we could not see as parliamentarians, uh, there was written that the WHO was at the trigger to say this is a pandemic and if they say it, then the whole business was on and they had to take the vaccines for pandemic use. And this was about $18 billion worldwide value and uh, this is a lot of money in health. So uh, we, we were wondering because of this mild flu, how such, a, such an enormous waste of money could happen and how uh, millions of people could have been vaccinated parallelly to the seasonal vaccination, so it's a double vaccination, uh, without any uh, uh, scientific evidence to do so. In remarks to the recent meeting of the WHO's executive board, WHO Director General Margaret Chan lamented that, quote, The days when health officials could issue advice based on the very best medical and scientific data and expect populations to comply may be fading, end quote. Finally this week, the pronouncements of the Climatic Research Unit are increasingly under scrutiny from all corners. The CRU is one of the key institutions involved in the IPCC report that argue that climate change is man-made, and have been under intense criticism for the past three months since internal emails and documents were leaked showing that fudge factors were introduced into climate models to produce expected results. In a startling development, the London Guardian one of the chief proponents of the anthropogenic global warming hypothesis in the corporate media, has released several articles this week taking the CRU researchers to task for breaking the law and violating basic principles of open and honest science in their research. On February 4th, The Guardian published an article admitting that the ClimateGate emails, initially dismissed as a case of stolen information, perpetrated by an unnamed shadowy conspiracy, is almost certainly the result of a leak from a dissatisfied insider at the University of East Anglia. On February 3rd, they published a story showing how the researchers in fact broke the law by denying legitimate freedom of information requests for the raw data that they had manipulated to produce their results. On February 2nd, they produced a report on how the peer review process itself has come under question, as the emails raised doubt about the groupthink process and political machinations that helped to keep dissenting opinions out of the literature. And on February 1st, The Guardian published an expose about how CRU director Phil Jones had knowingly attempted to hide problems with data about Chinese weather stations that were central to a 1990 paper that purported to show that the well-known urban heat island defect was in fact negligible. Bizarrely, the paper claims that this problem in the data was in fact discovered and exclusively revealed by The Guardian this week, when in fact it has been known and talked about on climist realist sites for years. As official editorial stance, The Guardian still claims that the science behind the anthropogenic global warming theory is 
unassailable. Now, stay tuned for episode 116 of The Corbett Report, Vancouver 2010 and the Terror Olympics, where we discuss Olympic protests, an encroaching Vancouver police state, and the possibility of false flag terror, with Kevin Annette of HiddenFromHistory.org and DJ Ball of WeAreChangeVancouver.org. Welcome to episode 116 of The Corbett Report, Vancouver 2010 and the Terror Olympics. When we think about the Olympic Games, many of us think about our favorite sporting events, about feats of athleticism, about patriotic pride, or even just how to avoid talking about the Games with sports-obsessed relatives, friends, and co-workers. Regardless of how we think of the Games, however, it's safe to say that very few of us associate the Olympics with terrorism and threats to the homeland. Just because you and I are not thinking that way, however, does not mean that certain other people aren't. No fly lists, tougher identification rules, all part of the war on terrorism that will only intensify here in B.C. with the approach of the Olympic Games. Terrorism experts say our province is far from being immune to a potential threat. CTV's 2010 reporter Mike Colleen has more. Like every Olympic host city, Vancouver is a potential target for terrorists. They're a wonderful stage for the terrorists to advertise their cause. Terrorism experts say Canada's military role abroad could provide the motive for retaliation in 2010. Punish Canada for being in Afghanistan, punish the United States for being in Iraq. I mean, the, the largest contingent of athletes will be Americans. Uh, other than Canadians, the largest number of tourists will be Americans. All viable targets. That means a potential threat to Olympic venues, the airport, port, and other transportation systems. The big challenge, securing airspace over the Lower Mainland and Whistler. And the Canadian Air Force will not be enough. It will take a good chunk of the U.S. Air Force. So NORAD will have to assume the responsibility for security. YVR officials recently removed detailed diagrams of the airport's critical infrastructure systems from its website. Security experts called them a terrorist's guide to YVR. And then there's the issue of security costs. No one seems to believe the $175 million that's been budgeted will be anywhere near enough. Not the IOC. We feel it's not enough. Not the PM. Now there are, uh, you know, as yet to be determined costs associated with security. Not this terrorism expert. We're looking something in the neighborhood of you know, half a billion, more likely a billion dollars. Despite assurances 175 million will be enough, the RCMP warned the BC government last fall it couldn't project 2010 security costs beyond this year. They'll be split between the provincial and federal governments, meaning you're on the hook for the final bill, whatever it ends up being. Mike Killeen, CTV News, Vancouver. Yes, it seems that absolutely nothing in our post-9-11 world is free from the war on terror hysteria that's been pumped down our throats by the establishment press for the past decade, and the Olympics is unfortunately no exception. Now, to the extent that we can grant that there are terrorists in the world who genuinely do want to further their political goals by creating large-scale spectacular terrorist attacks in public venues, then it does follow that the Olympics would be such a target and that the appropriate steps to defend the Games should be taken by the Canadian authorities. But also, of course, listeners to this podcast will know that every time there is a large-scale, massive, spectacular terrorist event that needs the support of state actors in order to take place, it's almost always puppeteered by the shadow government masters, intelligence operatives, and other shadowy figures who are lurking around in the background and who we've shined the flashlight on time and again in this podcast. And that would be, of course, false flag terrorism that we're talking about, or terrorism that is committed in the name of an enemy against oneself in order to justify taking action against that other force and also, of course, to clamp down on unruly populations at home. But before we get into that aspect of what we're dealing with, perhaps it's time to even ask that, well, given that there are terrorists and that we do need some sort of security precautions at the Games. Are the actions of the Vancouver police and the Canadian military and the Canadian authorities appropriate in dealing with this potential threat? 
And quite obviously, the answer is a resounding no. As CTV's John Woodward reports, Mounties are knocking on people's doors, not because of something they did, but because of who they know. It's been two years since Greg Hamilton finished his work on Five Ring Circus, a documentary about the problems of the 2010 Games. It's absolutely devastating. If people truly saw what these games have done to this region and the changes it's made, I, I honestly think there'd be a lot more opposed. But a few weeks ago, he felt caught up in his own story when two plainclothes police officers came to his door. I was alone with my two children, uh, getting ready for nap time, and they just wanted to ask me questions. Who I knew, what I knew, uh, what my plans were. Last summer, the RCMP's Integrated Security Unit acknowledged officers had approached more than a dozen people to ask about threats during the games. But Olympic opponents say in the past few weeks, the nets become much wider. CTV News has spoken with four more people who say they've been approached by police about Olympic security, and they're not even planning to protest. The list includes Hamilton, Langara student Danica Serm, an activist ex-wife, and another activist roommate. I think the, the message that comes across is that uh, people should be very careful about criticizing the Olympic Games because they may just get a visit from a police officer, but not just them, but their friends and family and people that they care about. This security expert thinks police are trolling for leads. I think this because I was somebody to hope that that person may be connected to another person who may be connected to another person who may indeed be near someone who may be violent. The duty BC's top cop to says prevent. police will obey the law. Our goal is to ensure that we have those safe and secure games. I expect law enforcement to do whatever they can to ensure that security and prevent incidents from taking place. On the one hand, it's laughable. On the other hand, it's scary. Hamilton says the police visit won't stop him from making films. Instead, it could give him something else to make a movie about. John Woodward, CTV News, Vancouver. A city of Vancouver bylaw that temporarily bans anti-Olympic posters and leaflets near 2010 venues is under fire from the BC Civil Liberties Association. It's backing Chris Shaw and Elisa Westergaard-Thorpe, both vocal critics of the games, who are challenging the bylaw in court, saying it's unconstitutional. The council seems to be putting marketing rights and their obligation to the IOC and to Vanock ahead of the rights of Canadians, and therefore we have to challenge the by law and, and seek to strike it down. We obviously developed this in, in consultation with, uh, with our uh, legal team here and uh, with the province, so we have, uh, we have some comfort in uh, the fact that, that these bylaws uh, stand up to that test. A statement of claim was filed this morning at BC Supreme Court. The plaintiffs are making a special application to get the issue before the courts in time for the games. Certainly it will come as no surprise to many of my listeners that the Vancouver police are using this, these games as an excuse to further clamp down on the citizens of Vancouver and to erect a police state in that fine city in order to keep people under control lest any of them get any ideas about possibly protesting against the Olympics or even associating with people who protest against the Olympics. And this is part of a large and very disturbing trend toward the erosion of civil liberties in Vancouver, in British Columbia, in Canada, and generally in the developed countries around the world. And this is something that has been very ably tracked by Dana Gabriel, who ha runs a blog at beyourownleader.blogspot.com, and he's been tracking these Olympic Games and how they're being used to implement police state measures in Vancouver. And I've posted a number of his articles in the article section of CorbettReport.com over the past few months. So, quoting from an article that he wrote on 17th of December 2009 called Police State Canada 2010 and the Olympic Crackdown, quote, In advance of the 2010 Winter Olympics, critics of the Games have been subjected to surveillance, harassment, along with other intimidation tactics. Voicing opposition to the Olympics appears to be all that is needed for one to be labeled as a security threat. There are concerns over the negative impacts associated with holding the Games, as well as concerted efforts to stifle anti-Olympic expression. As the Coca-Cola-slash-RBC corporate torch relay nears its final destination, the opening ceremonies in Vancouver on February 12, 2010, more protests are expected. The Olympics are providing the perfect cover for many police state measures with ramifications that could leave a lasting legacy.
In a recent report, the Civil Liberties Advisory Committee, an Olympic watchdog group, issued a series of recommendations aimed at ensuring that rights and freedoms are respected during the Winter Games. The group strongly believes that protesters have a right to gather anywhere on public property, provided that they do not break the law. In regards to safe protest zones, CLAC favors that they be defined by painted lines on sidewalks or streets and not by fences or security barriers. This gives the perception that protesters are a threat. The Watchdog Group proposed that the Vancouver Police Department be given the lead role in dealing with Olympic protests. This is due to concerns over mistrust of the RCMP in the province of BC, as well as out-of-town police officers being unfamiliar with the groups and practices associated with peaceful protests here. CLAC also recommended that the Integrated Security Unit issue a public assurance that plainclothes police officers or other plainclothes agents will not actively participate in protests during the Olympics. There are fears that police could infiltrate anti-Olympic groups in order to stage events which would justify a crackdown during the 2010 Winter Games. At the Vancouver International Security Conference held from November 30th to December 1st, 2009, Victoria Police Chief Jamie Graham described how an undercover police officer posing as a bus driver infiltrated a group of anti-Olympic activists. The group was on its way to Victoria to protest the start of the Olympic torch relay in late October of this year. Apparently, not everyone saw the protesters as people exercising their rights, as liberal MLA Harry Bloy labeled them as terrorists with a limited intellect. This sort of thinking is part of a dangerous pattern of equating free speech and protest with terrorism. End quote. Now, on the issue of protest and free speech as examples of terrorism, people might remember the related story from earlier in 2009, where the U.S. Department of Defense, in a training exam, called protests low-level terrorism. And, of course, on the issue of the RCMP, as mentioned in that article, and how people in British Columbia are wary of the RCMP, well, that's because they uh, have very good reason to be wary of the RCMP, and people who are interested in how the RCMP has committed gross acts of negligence and of miscarriage of justice and of police brutality, and then covered up those acts among their own by investigating themselves— People might want to look at my article from last year, the, Man the Mounties always get their man, unless that man is a Mountie. But if the listener is getting the impression that the Olympics are now being used more and more as a way for police departments and local authorities to increase their power and to spend millions upon millions upon hundreds of millions of dollars on new high-tech goodies for dispensing with protesters and riots, well you'd be exactly right. The Vancouver Police Department denies the purchase of a new crowd control device has anything to do with the Olympic Games. Critics fear that the high-tech equipment will be used as a weapon against anti-Olympic crowds. CTV's Lisa Rossington joins us now live with more on how this device works and why it's so controversial, Lisa. Well, this device was actually demoed by the BPD's Marine Squad during the summer during the celebration of lights. The BPD liked it, so they bought it. But critics are saying tonight that it could be like the taser situation all over again, law enforcement using a tool that is untested in this country. This is an LRAD. The LRAD 500, or the long-range acoustic device, it's the latest tool in the Vancouver Police Department's arsenal. It's a high-end loudspeaker. Unlike a conventional megaphone, the LRAD emits highly directional sound waves. The message can be heard by people two kilometers away. The VPD says it bought it to communicate in the event of an earthquake or a mass evacuation. This is a very effective public address system. And as I showed you, the volume is controllable. Uh, we'll be working with organizations like WCB and other organizations to find acceptable volume levels in the various situations. But this is what it can also do, emit a pulsing sound that hurts the ears. Demonstrators in Pittsburgh ran when police cranked up the volume during a G20 summit in September. 
The manufacturer, American Technology, touts it as a crowd-control device. It deters hostile behavior with powerful tones. Critics call it an acoustic weapon and wonder if it will be turned on anti-Olympic demonstrators. We can't rule out anything in the use of this, in the use of this device at any sound level. Here's an idea of sound levels. A normal conversation is between 60 and 70 decibels. Truck traffic at 90 decibels. A rock concert at 115 decibels. Pain begins at 125 decibels. And a jet engine or a gun blast registers at 140 decibels. Even short-term exposure can cause permanent damage. At its maximum, the LRAD 500 can top 146 decibels within one meter. So if you have uh, an impulse noise which emits 140 dBA or 140 dB SPL, uh, then that's the maximum that you're allowed to be exposed for that day. Yeah, Wearing earplugs, he says, would help, but only slightly. The BPD is the only police department in Canada that has purchased this device at a cost of $17,000. This thing was not done in a public way. We haven't assurances as to anything. I want to know where the mayor was and where the council were when this thing was being bought. Public money has been spent on this without any kind of democratic oversight and control in a public way that would make us feel as if we knew what we were getting into. According to the distributor, the device, which was developed about four years ago, has not undergone any independent testing in Canada. Now, Lisa, as you said, it's a new device for police that hasn't been independently tested. Is that a concern? It is a concern. We should mention first, though, that it is the company in Canada, in Port Moody, that distributes this machine that told us tonight that it is untested in Canada. That is current corporation. Um, they say that it is being tested currently by the Navy, uh, which bought two. But that is clearly the concern from BC Civil Liberties that, again, we're looking at a tool that has not been tested in Canada and really we're using it or going to be using it in this country for the first time. Pamela. All right, Lisa Rossington reporting. Well, in a way, perhaps the government is actually telling the truth for once, because it seems that these high-tech trinkets of tyranny, like the long-range acoustic device LRADs and other wonderful devices like that, are maybe not specifically for the Olympics after all, because they will remain in the possession and in the custody of the Vancouver police long afterwards and will be able to be rolled out and used upon to break up any dissent and any riots in any future society in Vancouver. So, indeed, they're not about the Olympics. They're about a much, much larger agenda. And people who are interested in the LRADs may want to go and check out some of the footage on YouTube of the protests at the G20 in Pittsburgh, where these uh, devices were deployed, or even when they were deployed on peaceful residential streets and people were told to get off the street or they would be dispersed with the LRADs. So yes, these are used and brought out and hyped up during spectacular events like the G20 or the Olympics in order to condition people to accept them, but Rest assured, they are starting to become more and more a part of our daily experience and will be so in the future once we have been sufficiently conditioned to accept them. Unless, of course, people actually do try to protest such ridiculous, tyrannical Orwellian devices before they become a regular part of our society. Well, certainly there are real pro protest groups that really are protesting the Olympics and really do have grievances against these 2010 games. So it's important to look at what people are actually saying about the games and then to assess whether these people are existential threats to Vancouver as the Vancouver police and the even the Canadian military and yes, even the US military is taking it because of course Canada and the US are signed into military agreements now, which means there will be the potential for cross-border operations in the event of an Olympic emergency but more on that later. For a little bit more on the Olympic protests and what they might be talking about, I'd like to turn back to a guest that we last had on episode 77 of the Corbett Report podcast, Canada's Genocide. Of course, I'm talking about Kevin Annett of HiddenFromHistory.org, and listeners may remember him as the film producer behind the feature-length documentary Unrepentant, Kevin Annett and Canada's Genocide, 
talking about how the Canadian government, the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches are all responsible for an unreported genocide that has taken place against the Aboriginal peoples of Canada in the preceding centuries. And again, I would wholeheartedly suggest people go back and listen to that episode and to my original interview with Kevin Annett, because that is some key information and and very disturbing. But recently, I had a chance to talk to Mr. Annett about the Olympic protests. And this follows on a press release that was on HiddenFromHistory.org on January 5th, 2010, British Columbia Olympics to face civil disruptions by survivors of Canadian Indian residential schools, government-given deadline for return of bodies. Quote, The group representing survivors of Indian residential schools on Canada's west coast announced today that it will hold civil disobedience actions and disruptions during the February 2010 Olympics near Vancouver if the Canadian government and mainline churches have not announced a timetable for the repatriation of the remains of the thousands of children who died in these schools. The friends and relatives of the disappeared, which held high-profile protests and occupations of churches in Vancouver and Toronto during 2007 and 2008, and compelled the Canadian government to issue an apology for the residential schools in July 2008, has given Canada and the Roman Catholic, Anglican, and United Church of Canada until February 15, 2010, to announce when and how they will return for a proper burial the remains of Indian children who died under their care. End quote. It was with great interest that I had the chance to talk to Kevin Annette about this and other protests going on in Vancouver, and we'll start this excerpt from the interview, which of course is available in its entirety from CorbettReport.com, with an excerpt where I begin by asking Kevin Annette what the police state that's being erected in Vancouver for the 2010 Games looks like on the ground. Well, it's really bad. It's basically the society, the whole uh, area of Vancouver uh, is being militarized, and is the you have martial law being declared. You have uh, regular police uh, sweeps where homeless people and natives, especially, are targeted and are put in paddy wagons and taken away uh, without any charges laid. They're, they have the power now to do that. Uh, security cameras everywhere. Uh, in one day, I counted 54 different cameras that I that I was under surveillance from in the downtown part of Vancouver, and these cameras are going to stay after the Olympics. Um, you have the fact that there's going to be 4,000 Canadian soldiers patrolling this area uh, during the Olympics. You know, that's more troops than there are in Afghanistan uh, from Canada. And, the, you know, the, it's it's a whole climate of repression. There's a, By the security forces, there's an integrated security unit, which involves the Vancouver police, the RCMP, private security companies, and they have the power to go into homes. They've uh, knocked on the doors of activists. They've they've threatened them with jail unless they answer their questions about you know a lot of details about what they're doing and who they're associated with. It's just that kind of continual harassment, and you know it in- indicates a real something more than just Olympic security. It's it's uh it's almost like they're using this as a a, a, a test case or something to to uh, to see how much I think to some degree to see how much people are willing to tolerate on the ground. Well, I think that's right. This must be some sort of test of what people are willing to put up with. And I, I guess the, the ultimate test of, of the people of Vancouver and, and the people of Canada really is, is to what extent they'll, they'll oppose these measures. But I, I imagine that there must be some backlash on the ground there. What, what's the sense of the people there about these measures? There's a lot of cynicism about it. I found very few people who are even very that excited about the games, the Olympic games, because it's it's operating under the shroud of of uh, repression and and corruption. I mean, the uh, for me the epitome of that is it, uh, the uh, the official supplier for food to the 2010 Olympics is McDonald's. If you can believe it, there's all these pictures of Olympic athletes holding junk food, you know, fries and hamburgers. I mean, that's a great diet to be on when you're an Olympic athlete. But uh, it, it's just all about uh, corporate uh, sponsorship and, and big bucks. And I think everyone's aware that even the mainstream media talk in those terms. So, uh, But in terms of the, the police state kind of measures, there is actually there was a, a protest the other day of, of hundreds of people in downtown Vancouver. And these are just the typical 
you know, stereotypical activists, young people. These are like uh, older people of kind of a cross-section of society, people who are very concerned and alarmed about uh, about the changes happening here. So, you know, I'm, I'm like with this work on residential schools, I see kind of a, a new awakening happening among people. There, there, there isn't this uh, automatic compliance that you would assume, you know. Well, just to put those changes into perspective for people, uh, what what really is the regulations against deploying the Canadian military? Uh, do, do, does there have to be some kind of official declaration of martial law in order for that to take place? No, Canada is not like the U.S. You know, it didn't have this posse comitatus law about prohibiting the use of soldiers on domestic uh, soil. Uh, Canada's never had that that uh, that tradition of of uh, holding the military in check. We've always been a colonial society, so there's. You know, when the War Measures Act was announced in 1970, for example, uh, it didn't even need an act of Parliament. All the most of the laws in Canada aren't even passed in Parliament. They're they're done what's called through order in council. So the Privy Council, which is this old colonial body from London, it's the the Prime Minister and his cabinet and the Governor General and a few civil servants. They sit down and wrap, drop the laws. They can pass these laws. It's never debated before a legislature. Uh, it's we've always lived under that kind of quasi-police state in Canada. And so, in a way, a lot of these things, as shocking as they are to maybe um, uh, middle-class people who have never faced that kind of repression, uh, it's always been the norm for Canada to operate this way. So, uh, you know, and something like this is a way for people to, to learn the true nature of what, of what they're living under, I think. Well, I understand that there will be a number of political protests during the Olympics, and uh, some of them, for example, are being organized by the Friends and Relatives of the Disappeared. For the listeners who may not know about that organization, tell us what it is and specifically what's being planned for the Olympics. Well, it's a, it's a network across Canada. Our two main groups are in Toronto and Vancouver, and we're a group of Native and non-Native people who are um, relatives or friends of people who've been through Indian residential schools and people who died there. And uh, we, for about four years now, we've been holding pretty high-profile occupations of churches, protests, uh, occupations of government offices to demand uh, that the children's remains be returned for a proper burial. Uh, there are over 50,000 children who died in residential schools, that the churches be held accountable, the Catholic, the Anglican, the United Churches, be brought to trial for something that was pure, I don't know, genocide. Um, and... We are one of the things we're hoping to do during the Olympics because there'll be literally thousands of reporters here from all over the world. We want to do some, again, uh, public and, and high-profile uh, protests that are going to draw the media so that we can begin to speak to them about not just the crimes of the past, but how these crimes are continuing, the condition of Native people today, um, and you know, holding the, these groups accountable for what, what's going on. So uh, we're, we're hoping to do that during the Olympics during mid to late February. Um, and, you know, reaching out in that way. Well, what what is the overall sense uh, among Natives about the, the games, and, and what what uh, are, are other groups tend, taking pl- uh, part in these, or is it just the friends and relatives of the disappeared? Oh, there's a lot of community groups that are going to be taking part. We're part of a whole network of anti-Olympic groups, uh, women, the Women's Center in the downtown east side, uh, community advocacy groups, some of the unions, you know, they're, we're all involved together and working on this. And, um, um, the, sorry, I forgot the first part of your question. What did, so do I. (laughs) 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 Oh, uh, the sense among native communities is sort of, Oh, the native people, native response. Yes. Um, very split. Uh, the government-funded Native chiefs are all in favor of the Olympics. They're they're talking about how it's creating job opportunities, which is nonsense. I mean, very few Native people are ever hired anywhere, and those that are at the Olympics are at minimum wage jobs that are going to be gone in two weeks. Um, so it's you know they've received big bucks from the government to do what they do, which is to get all the Native people on board to help the government. Um, but on the ground, a lot of the Native people who aren't tied into the government money system, into the, the band council system, um, they're the ones who are the most outspoken against the Olympics. I mean, for example, the Squamish uh, people whose land the Olympics are on, there was a lot of blockades of the Sea to Sky Highway when it was under construction. And there were a lot of arrests, you know, mostly of Native people who were trying to block that highway. So, you know, this is uh, something that on the ground there's there's a lot of opposition to. Kevin Annett of HiddenFromHistory.org. 
Certainly, there are a lot of protesters with legitimate concerns about these games who wish to exercise their fundamental right to free speech in the protest of these games and what they represent, and they should be left to do so to the extent that they are peacefully protesting. And we have to, in that regard, be very vigilant to the possibility that these types of groups will be infiltrated by the RCMP or other police agencies in order to provocateur police into reacting to violent protesters, quote-unquote. And a perfect example of that for people who might think that this is baseless conspiracy theorizing would be exactly what happened at the Montebello protests in 2007, where protesters against the Security and Prosperity Partnership were indeed infiltrated by the Sûreté de Québec, the Quebec Provincial Police Force, who were dressed up and posing as protesters, but were in fact actually members of the police force and were there to provoke the police into attacking otherwise peaceful protesters. And this has not only happened in Montebello, but in many, many other cases besides, so it's something that we have to be wary of. But there is an even larger picture that is emerging of things that are happening at and around these 2010 games that paints a decidedly more chilling scene. Now, this threat revolves around the possibility of false flag terrorism, as we outlined earlier in this episode, and the threat is, unfortunately, very real at these games. Let's start examining this issue by taking a look at another excellent and well-documented article by Dana Gabriel that was posted to the Corbett Report website on the 29th of January 2010, The War on Terrorism and the Countdown to the 2010 Olympics. Quote, General Jean Renoir, commander of the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, and U.S. Northern Command, NORTHCOM, has given some indication as to the function both will play during the Olympics. He stated that, quote, We in our NORAD role will maintain the air sovereignty both for the U.S. and Canada, the air security over the Olympic Games. He went on to say, In our NORTHCOM role, we'll probably provide some additional security and support, and consequence management response capability. NORAD's Deputy Commander, Lieutenant General Marcel Duval, recently expanded on the binational organization's responsibilities during the Olympics. NORAD will do its normal airspace warning and aerospace control mission over the Games using Canadian NORAD region assets, such as Canadian CF-18s. He also added that, will be supported by other NORAD assets like air-to-air refueling and airborne early warning aircraft. In regards to Canada Command, NORTHCOM, and NORAD's preparations for the Olympics, Duval acknowledged, In many ways, the 2010 Winter Games have allowed the three commands to come closer in terms of understanding, cooperating, and collaborating. Canadian officials continue to work closely with their American counterparts in monitoring potential security threats to the Games and its shared border. The Olympic Security Coordination Centre in Bellingham, Washington, will coordinate the security efforts for over 40 federal, state, and local agencies on the U.S. side of the U.S.-Canadian border. This facility will provide a strategic response platform to facilitate critical response efforts during the Olympic Games and beyond. In the advent of an emergency situation, the bilateral Civil Assistance Plan, signed by the U.S. and Canadian military in February of 2008, could be activated. The agreement allows the military of one nation to support the other during a civil emergency such as a flood, forest fire, hurricane, earthquake, or a terrorist attack. In late December 2009, pipeline and energy storage company Kinder Morgan notified the RCMP that while en route from Alberta to a North Vancouver facility, two one-ton bags of ammonium nitrate went missing. This is the same chemical compound which has been used in several past terrorist bombings. Kinder Morgan later determined the missing bags were as a result of a clerical error. The RCMP have not been able to confirm the company's findings and continue with their investigation. This could be setting up a cover story for a possible false flag terrorist attack during the Olympics. Whether or not you buy into the whole war on terrorism, it is being used to launch wars of aggression and further expand the American empire. It is also very much intertwined with the whole process of deep North American integration and plans for a continental security perimeter. 
The threat level for the upcoming Olympics remains low, but some are warning that the proroguing of Canada's parliament, along with the huge security apparatus being assembled for the Games, might be setting the stage for a possible false flag terror event. This could be used to pass more anti-terrorist and other draconian pieces of legislation. It could also lead to a martial law scenario with American troops occupying parts of Canada. End quote. To be sure, the idea of the American military occupying parts of Canada is a very extreme one, but is nonetheless a very real possibility in the event of any type of terrorist disruption of the Olympics, and thus one that must be taken very seriously. Now, we know that there are many people who have been engaged for many years in hoping to bring together the United States, Canada, and Mexico in a North American Union based on a shared security perimeter. And we've also heard, of course, how members of the CFR for many years have been saying that after the next terrorist attack, the North American Union will, of course, need to be implemented in order to ensure the safety of the North American continent. So we know there are people with motive and means for committing a false flag terror attack to bring about the very integrated North American Union that they so desire. And that is why the Olympics is one of these events that bring together a number of the pieces of the puzzle and greatly increase the risk that a false flag terrorist incident will be perpetrated. It would be relatively easy, depending on how the authorities set it up, to make it appear like this were a legitimate terrorist attack that required a stern response from the Canadian government. And, of course, the Canadian government is prorogued at the moment. That is to say, it has been disbanded until after the Olympic Games, which many people have stated is a very unusual and perhaps completely illegal move on the part of the Canadian government and Mr. Harper. But all of these pieces are now in play, and it is with that in mind that we have to be on guard for the possibility of a false flag terror attack. But in order to flesh this out and to put together those pieces of the puzzle that add up to a possible false flag terror attack, I talked earlier this week to DJ Ball of We Are Change Vancouver. Now, We Are Change Vancouver is, of course, the local Vancouver chapter of the international We Are Change organization that we've featured time and again on this podcast for their excellent grassroots political action. And We Are Change Vancouver has been keeping their eye on the developing possibility of a false flag terror attack at the Vancouver 2010 Games. So it was with great interest that I talked to DJ Ball about all of these individual pieces of information that, taken by themselves perhaps, don't sound like much, but taken together add up to the very real possibility that we are dealing with the setup for a false flag terrorist event. If you have a look at, there's, there's some interesting developments that have happened here. We had about a year and a half ago, Canada sign a security agreement with Israel. We had uh, about around the same time, Canada signed agreement with the United States where American troops can operate on our soil, which a lot of us called an act of treason at the time. Recently, we've had Stephen Harper, who some of us call Hare Harper. Um, recently, we've had Hare Harper prorogue our parliament which a lot of people are thinking that maybe he knows something we don't and there's an, an attack coming. Those are all sort of things that could easily be, uh, you know, they could just be coincidences. We've got George Bush and George, uh, we got, we got George Bush Sr. and George Bush Jr. here last week under a complete cloud of veil of secrecy. Uh, I've got a friend that's, uh, that's within the Masons that said a friend of his had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. He wouldn't tell me where they were speaking because of the agreement he signed, but he said they were in town. I think CBC radio might have reported it, but basically it was a very, very hush-hush, uh, hush-hush little visit for those guys. They were here last week. I mean, anytime they're anywhere close, uh, you got to wonder if something's up, those demons. We had Giuliani here uh, not too long ago. We had Cheney here not too long ago. So a lot of the same architects of what I think had a hand in 9-11 had been here recently. Uh, there's a company called Kinder Morgan. This has got a lot of people talking. Kinder Morgan has uh, an accounting issue right now with 2,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate. They tried to tell the RCMP that they've uh, they found their paperwork error, but the RCMP are still not convinced. And there's been there's been a story in the press saying that this has been dealt with. 
or the case has been closed, but it hasn't. The RCMP, from from my best of my knowledge, are still looking for this missing ammonium nitrate. Now, ammonium nitrate, don't know what the what that's what, what the importance of that is. Was the same sort of stuff that was used in the Murrah to to blow up the Murrah Federal Building in in Oklahoma years ago. The amount of ammonium nitrate that took down the Murrah Federal Building was about half of what's missing in the lower mainland of this fertilizer, this bomb making uh, material that's floating around. So there's there's a bunch of there's a there's a couple Murrah Federal Buildings rolling roaming around lost somewhere here in the uh, lower mainland. That's definitely something that's got the internet a, a, a blaze on on speculation. Uh, we've got a company called Verant that is doing security out at YVR, which is our airport. Now, if they were going to follow the same, and this is a low probability thing, I would, I would, I would give it. But if Verant was going to follow the same MO, they do security at the airport. We've got a new brand of Tamla line, which is like a SkyTrain, basically an L train that goes from the airport right into downtown. So if they followed the same MO, which I don't think they would, they're not that dumb. They would put a device on that camera. Canada line train, they'd send it into downtown, and then the variant security cameras wouldn't work. People are talking about that as well. Um, there's there's quite a few there's quite a few other troubling signs too. I think we could talk about like potential coincidences for probably another hour and a an hour and a half, James. But those are some of the main ones. I mean, the, the ammonium nitrate is definitely one that people are really worried about and concerned about. Maybe it's just all smokescreen. You know, we we really don't know at this time. It, it's one of these things that's hard. We can speculate and speculate. I think the whole point of talking about this is that we need to have Canadians, if something does happen here in Vancouver, we need to have Canadians demand a real and proper investigation and not just take whatever patsy they point the finger at if something does blow up, whether it's a pipe bomb at a nightclub or a bomb in a hotel at a soft target or whether it's a big, like a mini nuke at the container port, which, uh, which you know, I really dread that doesn't happen because I don't live too far from that area. Well, that's right. And I, I certainly hope that people understand that what we're doing here is trying to draw attention to this before anything has the chance to take place in the hopes that it will perhaps back anyone off who is thinking of doing something like that. Because, of course, if it's exposed ahead of time, it makes it that much harder for them to come up with a, a cover story um, to try to describe what they've done uh, after the fact. But uh, on the idea of the ammonium nitrate, of course, people will remember that the Murrah building was taken down, well, ostensibly taken down by the ammonium nitrate fuel oil bomb that uh, that ostensibly, we're told, uh, McVeigh used. Um, but of course, uh, uh, people might remember that there was a rider truck that was uh, parked in an army airbase that was photographed just weeks before the bombing took place being filled up with uh, various substances. So, uh, again, if this can be exposed ahead of time, it's easier to show what it really is. So, um, all all of these are perhaps by themselves not don't, don't sound particularly important, but when taken together and taken in the context of the geopolitical situation that you were referring to earlier, I certainly think that's uh, that's a possibility that we have to be on guard for. So, how how do you think that that such an attack might play out in the current climate, and and what might be some of the ramifications? Well, let's just say, I mean, I didn't even touch on the fact that, before I, before I move on to how that would play out, I mean, I didn't even touch on the fact that we have, like, uh, a man, uh, I think it's Peter Peter Power, I believe his name is. He's a British man that was running uh, a security advisor that was running terrorist drills on 7-7 when they got hit. He's actually in charge, I think he's consulting our Canadian Center for Emergency Prep, uh, Preparedness. Kinder Morgan, I didn't even I didn't mention earlier, was just recently bought out by AIG, Goldman Sachs, and Carlyle Group. For those of those those of you who've been paying attention, there's a few uh, a few more little players in that whole scenario that I didn't mention on that. That you know, those of us that have been paying attention will definitely recognize those names. If something is to happen here, let's just let's let's use a hypothetical for you. Let's say that the Canadian men's hockey team was targeted and all died in a terror attack, whether it was walking into a GM place or I'm just going to go with the, the worst, the worst, the worst, one of the worst scenarios. Canadian men's hockey team gets hit. Stephen Harper would be able to, to call a dictatorship for probably the next 10 years. And he'd probably have 500,000 Canadian boys signing up for the military the day after. Same thing goes if they go after BC place, if there's any sort of big event like that, the war on terror, the war of terror gets a big boost. Patriotism goes to the roof. The new, uh, the Fourth Reich gets their new Reichstag, basically. Uh, 
So, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's hopefully what we're hoping that doesn't happen, but I think these people do need a big event. I mean, you got Leon Panetta saying just the other day, James, you're probably aware, the CIA director, that an Al-Qaeda, a massive Al-Qaeda attack is imminent. DJ Ball from WeAreChangeVancouver.org. I would certainly suggest that listeners take a look at WeAreChangeVancouver.org to find a new video that they just put up of a security walkabout around some of the Olympic sites in and around Vancouver, BC, where they take a look at some of the security precautions that have been put in place already even a week ahead of the Games. And one can only imagine that security is going to increase and things are going to come to a head in some form or other, regardless of what does or does not take place at the Games this year. So people should definitely stay tuned to wearechangevancouver.org for any updates about anything that is happening at the Games. But at this point, of course, it's important to let new listeners know and people who don't know about how this system works that it is not activist groups like We Are Change Vancouver or media entities like The Corbett Report that are hyping up this terror hysteria. In this case, of course, it's not us. It's the people who are supposedly in charge of defending us from such attacks who are the real terrorist fear mongers, as evidenced by, as DJ Ball alluded to in our conversation, This story from the 3rd of February 2010, PrisonPlanet.com. Red alert, intelligence chiefs certain their bosses will stage terror attacks soon. Quote, Using information gleaned from the blatantly set up underwear bomber Patsy Umar Abdul Mutalab, intelligence chiefs have assured us that their bosses will stage another terror attack in the U.S. within the next three to six months. According to the nation's intelligence chiefs, a terror attack in the United States will likely be launched within the next six months, reports WLS. ABC News has learned some of the intelligence has come from the accused Christmas Day bomber, states the report. Despite the fact that the official story behind the Christmas Day bombing has been discredited beyond all recognition, the establishment is still constantly invoking it as yet another reason for Americans to obediently line up for naked body scans in fear of whatever boogeyman is being waved in front of their face this week. Since federal and state authorities apparently now consider libertarians, Ron Paul supporters, gun owners, and basically anyone with two brain cells left to rub together as potential domestic terrorists, whatever tricks they do decide to pull over the next six months will undoubtedly be used to tighten the screws against American dissidents that they have consistently characterized as extremist threats. End quote. One merely has to substitute Canadian for American in that article to have the exact same terror threats transplanted into the current Vancouver 2010 Games context. But the threat agenda, as MediaMonarchy.com has been referring to it, is certainly on the rise, and we are merely keeping our eye out for the possibility of false flag terror because... Once we expose this ahead of time, it becomes that much more difficult for them to pull off any spectacular false flag terrorist attack. Once we are in the mindset that we have to be on guard against the government staging attacks like these, they lose the momentum that they gain from implementing such attacks in the first place. So all we are doing is providing a truth inoculation in the hope that it will prevent any such attack from taking place. The only people who want to see a large-scale attack at these games are the political terrorists who want to use death and destruction to further their own political goals. And together, if we are vigilant and if we provide this truth inoculation to others ahead of time, can help to prevent that from happening. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, inviting you to join me again next week for episode 117 of The Corbett Report, Requiem for the Suicided. In city shoes of clueless blues, pays to views in no man's news, blades will fade from blood to sport, a heroine's cut these fuses short, smoke is rolled in colonial pink, Drink and frame this pain, I think I'm melting silver poles, my dear You beat your wings and then disappear The moving scenes and pilot lights Smithereens, the god of scaling heights Modern times come talk
Cause it's up in flames and nothing's changed Parisian boys without your names Right like 1968 again The days are aging, nothing's changed More pretty flames In school I would just bite my tongue And now your words, they strike me dumb The flags are false and they contradict They point